Well, here we are. <laughs> the conclusion of the matter. Uh, that's a line from the last few words of Solomon's writing entitled Ecclesiastes, which we have studied together over the last six or months or so. It's one of the most difficult and misunderstood of all the scriptures. It's often ignored, uh, sometimes attacked, but still, for all of that, it was and remains God's word. Uh, it's always a little sad to me to come to the end of a study like this, but there's also a sense of fulfillment. Uh, it, it's good to finish what you start. Uh, I think maybe you know the feeling. Uh, it's, if you're like me, uh, uh, you may not like the actual painting of a room, but somehow, even though you don't like the painting, uh, you like the finished product. You're glad when it's done, not just because it's over, but because of what you have accomplished, right? You might even show it off to your friends. But when it comes to Ecclesiastes and the whole preaching process, there, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it, but it's joyful work. And when you get to the end, it feels complete. It's a good feeling, and we're almost there. At the end of our time together today, we'll be done. But I hope that the truths that we've learned will continue in our lives, kind of like the paint that remains on the walls after the painting is done. The final passage here in Ecclesiastes is really full of theology, but it is a theology that is spoken by a poet and not an engineer. <laughs> and that's all part of God's wonderful design in the word that he's given us. Some of the gems of God's word lay open upon the ground, and all who come by can simply pick them up. And other treasures are more hidden, and they take a little bit of digging to unearth, but they're always worth the effort. And so with those thoughts in mind, let's turn to the last words of Ecclesiastes. And for the last time, you can join me there in that book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, where we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. Now, the text here is going to tell us six or seven, depending on how you divide them up, things about the Word of God. And we're going to look at each one of those. And I'm going to tell you, not one of them is going to surprise anyone here. But I want to kind of give you a little heads up about the, this text, which maybe will help us to understand it. Solomon's main idea, the most important thing that he has to say, is very simple, but it's not the less profound because of that. And it comes in the middle of our passage. That's a place of prominence in wisdom and poetic lit uh, literature. Uh, it, it becomes a kind of a focal point or pivot uh, point of the passage. In essence, what happens is this passage leads up to the idea found there, and then it proceeds from it. And the Hebrew Bible doesn't always do that kind of thing. Sometimes it's very like our Western thought, but it often does use this structure. Our usual way uh, in the West of doing things generally is to either put the most important point first or end with it and go out with a kind of a bang. And so the Old Testament takes a little get, getting used to when it does this kind of thing. But once you do, I think you appreciate the balances there. So the text leads up to the main idea, it establishes it, and then it goes away from it and draws conclusions from that. 
And, and that's how we're going to approach Solomon's words this morning. We're going to take it in order as he lays out his thoughts and then draws his conclusions. And the first thing that Solomon tells us is found in the beginning of verse 9. And it's that God's word is for sharing and teaching. So we read there, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. The word of God is to be shared and taught. God gave Solomon wisdom, and we know that from this book. We know it from our general biblical knowledge. But he didn't keep that wisdom to himself. He shared it with others. He calls himself a teacher here, and, and he also says he imparts knowledge, which is another way of saying the same kind of a thing. But there's a shared experience between the teacher and the learner. Solomon himself drank from God's well, and he gave some of its water to others. He, Solomon's not the source of the wisdom. God is. And when Jim and I teach or preach or any of us other people teach, our job, our calling, our purpose, and our goal is to communicate God's word. And it applies to us first. And we need to hear it. We need to heed it. We need to practice it. We need to live it out in our life. It means the same thing to us as it does to you. And we share in it. And yet, the Word is not just for teachers to teach, but it's for all of us to share with others. You drink from the same well yourself, and you can share that water with other people. My sweet wife uh, does conference support for Vanderbilt University, and she was doing that this past week. And Friday she had an errand to run uh, for the event. And at the place where she went to pick up some material, a man was in there, and he was just talking to the guy behind the counter. And when he noticed my wife, he apologized and started talking with her. And uh, the conversation went on while she got all of the stuff she needed to get, and he walked outside with her, and he asked her what her husband did for a living. And she told him, she told him I was a pastor. And then he said, well, I sure hope I'm good enough to get into heaven. And then Anne had to make a decision right then. I mean, she could excuse herself and get in her car and go, get back to the event, which she needed to do, or she could do what she in fact did. She could share the gospel, and so she did. She told him the good news about Jesus Christ. And then he paid her a compliment, and he said, if your husband ever gets ill, you can fill in for him. (laughs) But more importantly, he asked her to pray for him. What she did when she got in the car. We'll never see that guy again unless we see him once we're in heaven. You know, Anne's not a pastor or a teacher, but she drinks from the same well that we do. And she shared that with that man that day. You see, the Word of God is for teaching and sharing. And that's the first thing that Solomon says here. And the second thing we learn from this text is sort of like, if I can put it this way, it's, it's a peak behind the curtain It gives us a glimpse into how God gave us the Bible. The Bible is God's word, but it came to us through humans. So in the middle of verse 9 and the first part of verse 10, 
uh, we read this. He, that, that's the teacher that Solomon's now referring to himself that way. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. And the teacher searched for just the right words. You see, the Bible came to us through men. And that surprises some people, people who maybe honor the Bible but don't know much about it. And, and, and having never thought about it, they typically are kind of under an impression that God simply handed his book to some people at some point, at somewhere in time. And, and if you're going to err, if you're going to be mistaken about how God gave us his word, this is the mistake to make because it gets you to the right place. We do absolutely have God's word, but he didn't hand it to a people. He spoke it through them. As 2 Peter one twenty one says, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God's guidance of his chosen instrument as they spoke or wrote his word was so precise that what was spoken or written is God's word as if he had handed uh, to us in a book in bound form. Solomon's writing, his searching out, his choosing the right words were all done under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and what we have here in Ecclesiastes and Solomon's other writings and all of the rest of the Bible is God's Word. And, you know, that fits right in with God's larger design. See, God has chosen to use people to reach other people. We're, we, we are not alone in the effort oh, by any means. God helps us by the Holy Spirit living in us, and the Holy Spirit is also at work in the hearts of the people we're trying to reach. But there really is no way around it. God's design is to use people to reach other people. So a man is called to preach, to take the word of God to others, and he does. Missionaries and other foreign workers travel to other places, uh, even to the uttermost parts of the earth, to take God's word to those who are in need. You share God's word with your family and friends and, and strangers that you meet in the store when the opportunity presents itself. And the greatest example of this is, of course, that God provided for our very salvation by becoming a man himself so he could take our way, sin away. That's God's design, to use people to reach people. Well, he uses other means uh, to supplement them sometimes, of course. Uh, there are reliable and documented reports <clears throat> pardon me, of miracles that are occurring on a regular basis in places like India. And it is beyond any doubt that God is using dreams to bring Muslims to himself. But the miracles are usually the result of someone's prayer. And the dreams are of Jesus calling them and they're instructing them and they lead the Muslim to a Christian who can share the faith. On special occasions, God may even use an angel if the person's been prepared for it. I mean, he's done so in the past, right? And nothing it says that he won't still that, do that today. I mean, we're even told in Hebrews to entertain strangers because they might be angels. 
And you might wonder why God doesn't do that more often. Why doesn't he make use of angels all the time? Well, for one thing, most people, if they ever saw an angel as an angel would really appear to them, if he wasn't veiled like a man, they would be too frightened to hear what he had to say. When an angel appears to someone in that spiritual form that they do, the, the first response is always terror. And then the second thing, mere power cannot change a human heart in the way it needs to be changed. And then you understand something. Angels only see God's work in people's lives from the outside. You and I know it from the inside. We know it in a way that an angel can never know it. And so we can communicate it to people in a way that they need to hear it. That's God's design. God uses people to reach other people. And so he gave his word through people. And now that we have it, we are to teach it and to share it. That's what Solomon is telling us here. The third thing that our text tells us about the word is that though it came through people, it is God's word and it reflects the attributes of God. So verse 10 again, specifically we're going to look at the last part. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The Word of God reflects God because it's upright and true, because God spoke it, because God inspired that man to write it. So upright means righteous. It means being right. It means being the right kind. It's pure through and through. It's without sin. It's not stained in any way by evil. It's good. It's clean, just as God is. And since God is true, His Word is too. It's accurate, it's genuine, it's factual. It lines up with what really is. It is reality, it's fact. There's no error in it. You can rely on it, you can count on it, you can trust it, you can live by it, you can die by it, you can never be put to shame by it. You can trust in it just like you can trust God because it is His Word. And so God's Word, since it's His Word, reflects the attributes of God. And the fourth thing we're going to see here is that not only is it upright and true, but God's word is for living. Verse 11 says, The words of the wise are like goads, and their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. God's word matters to the way we live. Now, if you think about what we just talked about, the righteousness and truth of his word, you'll understand that obeying God's word, living it out, leads one into truth. And it enables one to live an upright life. And that change, as we live out the word, goes deep down in our soul. Here Solomon says the word is like a goat. It can be like a smack from a stick with a nail in it or like a spur on a horse. It'll move you, and it'll move you quick. The little bit of pain that sometimes accompanies the truth is passing, but it's worth it, for you find yourself on the right path again. And you need to understand that picture of a goad merely represents the larger truth, which is the Word of God guides us through this life. It's meant for living. And then, too, God's Word gives us a place to hang 
the things of life like firmly embedded nails. Now, a long time ago, I put up a little canvas print in the dressing area just off of our bedroom. And Anne must have been afraid that I was going to use a railroad spike to hang it because she insisted that uh, she didn't want a big hole in the wall. And she gave me this teeny, tiny nail about the size of a staple to do the job. And I tried to talk her out of it, but in the end, I did what I was told. (laughs) So from time to time, that nail would kind of work its way out, and the print would end up on the floor. Print was never any worse for the wearer. Even even if it had been destroyed, it would have been not even a never mind. But when I hung that heavy mirror in our living room and and the one in the dining room and even our family pictures, well, they were something we didn't want regularly falling to the floor. (laughs) We didn't even want them to fall once. So I was allowed to use the right hangers. And you know railroad spikes, if they're painted, they don't look really that bad. The Word of God is like firmly planted nails. And you can hang the important stuff of life on it. Our marriages, our children, how we raise them, our relationships, our future. And His Word will never let us down. You can put all of your weight on it. Now, of course, we have a long way to go. God's Word is there to guide us, but we still, I mean, we still sin, and so we still need a goad from time to time. And then there are some things that we haven't, well, we haven't hung them up yet. We we aren't leaning on God's Word. We're, We're not relying on it. We're trying to bear all the weight ourselves. And there are other things that we hang them up, But we keep taking them off that firmly embedded nail and start lugging them around again. And that change has begun. Even now in this life, we're becoming more like Jesus Christ. We've put our lives in his hands. We've trusted him with our eternity. We have heard his word and we are embracing it a little more each and every day. God's word is is for living this life. So someone shared the word with us. And the word of God, which came through people, but which reflects God as an upright and true. And we've been changed, and we continue to change. We live out his words in our life. We're guided by it, and we hang the important things of life on it. God's at work in us and through us, and we can share it with others. And that brings us to the main point that Solomon has been leading up to. And it's simple. There's not much to say about it. Uh, certainly, it, it, it's stated in just a, a couple of words. But it is itself like a firmly embedded nail that we can hang all of life on. And this is it. The Scripture comes from the God who cares for us. The end of verse 11, the word of God is given by one shepherd. The scriptures, the Bible comes from God, from God who is the good shepherd. And all by itself, that's a powerful statement. All by itself, we can put all of our weight on that. All by itself, the whole world can hang on that truth. 
And, and you want to ask me, why is it so powerful? Well, it's because by definition, anything that comes from God is good, and yet it's beyond good. It's holy. And that means it's invested with God's purposes. Yeah, there's so much nonsense and bad stuff on the internet, so much that's questionable. But there are messages that come into your inbox, maybe from Voice of the Martyrs or Free Burma Rangers or Open Doors or Orion Alive Ministries, Crosswalk, Family uh, Research Council, whatever it might be. And when you see that source, you have confidence in what you're going to read. They, they speak with a clear and honest voice that rises a bunch of all, above all the noise, and you trust them. And God's Word's like that. You trust the source, and it's invested with his purpose. The good things that come into your inbox, they're only written by people. So they may not always be right, but you can absolutely rely on God's word. And he's your shepherd. He, he cares for you. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. It's that word, his word, that he gives you. It comes from him. And so his word feeds you, it strengthens you, it guides you, it protects you, it changes you. It's meant for your good, and it comes from the good shepherd. And in our scripture reading today, you know, the text said that the Bible uh, is God-breathed, right? Uh, the older translations and some of the new ones, uh, the Bible says inspired, and that Greek word translated from the Latin is where we get our word inspired, right? But the idea is not just to have some kind of a good idea. You, you know, oh, I was inspired to paint a painting. That's not what it means at all. It, it's God who breathed out his word into the souls of those people, and it comes out as his word, and his word brings life just as it did in Genesis when he breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of that first man. The word is invested with his purpose, and it gives life. It's God-breathed. And when my, life's, my wife shared the gospel with that man at that store on Friday, it was as if the breath of God was blowing in that man's direction and maybe even coursing through his soul. The word of God breathes life. And it comes from the good shepherd. And, and you can begin to understand why God's word is for teaching and sharing. And even how it came to us through human beings. God carrying them along uh, by the Holy Spirit as they wrote and spoke. And God breathing out his word through them. And you can understand why it reflects God. And why it's for living. And it guides you. And, it, and, and you can hang the important things of life on it. It's from God who's our shepherd. And it's good. It's powerful. And it's purposeful. And with that verse, the text privets. And now the Solomon is led up to that point and established that the word is from God. And all that came up before that, he draws some conclusions. And the first one is that the God's word is unique in the world. Verse 12, be warned, my son, of adding anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there's no end, and much study wearies the body. There are other writings out there. And Solomon says, they come with a warning. So you have to be careful with them. God's word is unique. Only his word is inerrant. Only his word is inspired. 
Only his word is completely true. Only his word can be entirely trusted. God's word is one of a kind. It stands alone. And so I appreciate the writings of C.S. Lewis and Robbie Zacharias and many others, but I never confuse them with Scripture. And, and then there are other books like those of the Mormon religion which fall under the judgment and weight of God's Word. God's Word is unique. And God's Word is sufficient. That means we don't need anything more. With the close of the New Testament, there are no more scriptures to be added. There are no secret books, no hidden messages, no new revelations. And we don't need a priest or a church to interpret the Bible for us either. The Holy Spirit dwelling in the believer is the only interpreter we need. And no, we don't understand everything in the Bible. Everything we need to understand will be revealed to us by the Spirit when and if We need to understand it. The Bible is sufficient. That doesn't mean God doesn't still speak to us today. His will for my life is not the same as his will for your life. And yet, somehow, God manages to to guide us both. Sometimes it's through reading the Word. Sometimes it's through the prompting of the Spirit. Sometimes it's through that still, soft voice when God speaks into your heart and yet his leading always lies within the framework of the Bible because it's sufficient and if anything ever contradicts his word that's not from God no matter what someone might say or think God's word's unique only it's God breathed Only it's without error. Only it's sufficient. We don't need any other right. Now, I'm going to do something here. I debated on whether to do it or not uh, because there's something about this verse that's going to be only meaningful to a few of you here today. Uh, The Hebrew of this passage is admittedly hard, and and it's really beyond me. I'm just telling you that frankly. But having said that, some of you have read this, and some of your translations uh, seem to say that... um, that Solomon is not whirling against other books, but against adding to God's word as if we were changing what's written. And there are other writings, other instructions like that in the Bible. But if you think about it, though, uh, it ends up pretty much in the same place, right? God's word's here, and we start adding things and put it on the equal footing with God's word. It's the same as if we're changing what's already written. More arrogance Uh, uh, an amazing arrogance to change what is written. Now, I've opted for the translation that I did because of the context that follows, where it warns against the making of many books. It seems to be pointing to other writings when it does that. So here it is. There are all sorts of books out there, and according to Solomon, more are coming all the time. There's no end in sight. Some of them are good and helpful, but you could wear yourself out if you tried to read them all. But the Word of God breathes life into our souls. And if you're ever going to put your effort anywhere, put it there. Listen. listen. The sad truth is that many Christians don't read this book anymore. They read books about the book. They're not wrong to do that. 
but it's not, it's not supposed to be in place of the book. With that uh, truth firmly established, Solomon's ready to bring his final writing to a close. As he says in the beginning of verse 13, now all has been heard and here's the conclusion of the matter. Solomon shared his wisdom. He's written these words, which are God's word to us. And now he draws his conclusion and his final thoughts is guided by God. And he tells us that if we heed God's word, he tells us what the life of the believer looks like. It's a life of worship and obedience. And so we read in the rest of verse 13, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Look, all of humankind, I don't care whether they're believers or unbelievers, Jews, Gentiles, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, I don't care what they are. That it applies to everybody. Solomon makes it clear that the whole duty of all of mankind is to obey God, to fear God and obey his commandments. But only the believer can live it. Only the believer has, uh, who heeds God's words, even can begin to do what's said here. And and we need to to look more closely at what Solomon's written here. So first of all, we're told that we're to fear God. And that uh, the world around us, you know this as well as I do, they're not comfortable with this idea of fear at all. Sometimes Christians flinch at the idea. But when we understand first that fear just by itself is really the lowest form of worship, it's not enough, but it's a beginning. And and then when we understand that all is meant to replace fear, then then we realize that fear can be a gateway for a genuine, heartfelt worship and appreciation of God. The entry point for humans to have a relationship with God is set very low, where anyone can enter. But it'll rise you. It'll raise you up to the heights of glory <coughs> as you stand in awe of God. The life of the believer is one of worship, though it may begin in fear. And the second is that the life of the believer is characterized by obeying God. So if you even just fear God, uh, you will at least wish <laughs> you could do right. But if you have a real relationship with him, if you, if you know he loves you, if you, if you, if you want to love him, you're going to want to please him. You're going to want to do what he says. And only the believer can do that. Uh, and we don't prove it perfectly either, do we? we? We fail all the time. But we know God loves us. And so we confess our sins. And we ask for forgiveness. And we start again from the point where we fell and we continue to follow God. Even just fear by itself would motivate someone to keep on trying to follow God after their failures. How much more should real all that comes from a genuine relationship with God. The duty of all people is to fear God at a minimum and obey his commandments. But only the believer who has and heeds God's word can begin to do that. Now Solomon's very last words are sobering because he reminds us that one day we're going to stand before God. 
Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And that happens after our eyes are closed for the last time on this earth when our eyes are closed by another's hand. And every deed will be judged, even the ones that you think are secret. The good things as well as the bad. The day of judgment is coming for all humankind. And we have the word of God. It means we can teach it and share it because everybody needs it. We came through people and people are used it to bring it to others. The word of God reflects God. It's, it's true and upright. It's how we're to live our life in the world. It guides us. It gives us a, a place to hang our life on. It comes from the God who loves us, the good shepherd who cares for us and feeds us and strengthens us and gives us life through his word. God's word is unique in all the world, and it is only that one, the only writing that is completely trustworthy. You can put all your weight on it. You can completely trust God, and you will never be sorry that you did. And by God's word, we can live a life of worship and obedience, and we can be ready one day for the judgment that rates all humankind. Now, that's it. That's the conclusion of the matter as far as Ecclesiastes is concerned. But we're going to take a step back for a moment, a step into the New Testament, in order to put Solomon's thought into their greater context. And I'm going to mention just two things. First, there is a day of judgment coming. Solomon talked about that. But for us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins, all of them, even the most secret, were judged on the cross. They've already been judged. And we bear them no more. And that's reason to rejoice. And by the way, that's also true for the Old Testament saints. Their sins were also judged on the cross. And secondly, the Old Testament ethic of fearing God and obeying his commandments has been superseded by the New Testament call to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets now hang on this truth. Whereas the the Old Testament saints needed the temple and the sacrifices and the law to keep moving in the right direction, we have something they did not have, the Holy Spirit living in us. I think we all too often forget how great the change was that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ ushered in. But because of that, God now lives in us. That was not the case before Jesus came. The Spirit came on a person, empowered them, and then left. He lives in us now forever. We are his temple. And he's writing his word on our hearts every single day. That's what this table represents. This table represents the fact (coughs) that we are new creation because of what Christ did on that cross when he took all the sins, 
of all the people of all the world of all time in his body. He took them away. He died in our place. He tasted death for every person. He endured the wrath that was due us. And he was buried. And everything seemed as though it was dark. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And nothing's been the same since. I love what Mr. C.S. Lewis said. At that point, at the resurrection of Christ, death began working backwards. He's the first. He's not the last to be raised. If you know him, that's coming your way. So I'm going to invite those men who are going to help me uh, to uh, serve the Lord's Supper. And um, while they come, I just want to kind of fill you in a little bit. Most of you know this, but...